You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Welcome back. I have been looking forward to this day for a long time, not least of which July 1st, and was telling some friends recently when students began showing up last week, it was like, oh, we're educators, that's right, Uh, yeah. So it's a great reminder and it's a great nudge uh, that why we do what we do is because of you. And it's sunny out, it's a great time of year, classes are starting, fall sports begin immediately, the teams have been practicing. Luke Phillips had a sweet mustache (laughs) that he shaved. He's now on probation, um, but uh, (laughs) because it looked awesome. Hey, this morning, I get to talk to you about the good life. And I want to start with a thought experiment, and it it goes like this. So I'm, I'm going to ask you to respond to this, so be thinking about this. Imagine a scenario where you could get into this this tub of ice and have these electrical nodes connected to your brain, and you could have any experience you could ever imagine. It's called the experience machine. And when I say any experience, you could choose to be a queen or a king or a ruler of some sort, a celebrity, actress, or actor. You could be an author. You could be an actor. You could... Be the person that discovers a cure for cancer or baldness. (laughs) You could surf in Hawaii. You could climb Mount Everest. You could preside in the White House. Any experience that you want, you could have. Now, keep in mind, you wouldn't really be having that experience. The whole time, you'd be in a vat of ice with, again, electrical nodes connected to your brain. But you wouldn't know that. You would think that this was, in fact your real life that you were living. And moreover, you could keep recycling through new experiences at any time. So in essence, you could live the rest of your life in the experience machine. So given this, here's the question. Would you plug in? Would you live your life in the machine? Not not to try it out, but to actually carry out your existence from there. Now, before you answer, I know some of you have a few logistical thoughts related to this, like who would be running the machine and would I get enough food? Or maybe right now you're you're like, maybe I'm in the experience machine right now. (laughs) Just just suspend those (laughs) considerations. So let me ask, show of hands, would you get into the experience machine? Real high. Dr. Dan Lewis says yes. (laughs) All right, not many. So here's the interesting thing. This is a thought experiment that was done by the philosopher Robert Nozick some time ago. And the point is, if, if you believe in your heart of hearts, if you believe that the totality of the good life is simply a state of mind and nothing else, that reality is only what we perceive and experience, within our minds, then we're likely to accept the experience machine offer. But if you believe that the good life is not just a state of mind, but rather 
a state of being, a way of being, how you actually live your life, then you're more likely to reject the offer of the experience machine. Indeed, most people, when presented with this, do reject the experience machine offer because they implicitly believe that happiness and satisfaction and fulfillment in a desirable life is not simply a state of mind. If it were, we have another kind of experience machine. It's called drugs, right? Uh, if it were only about our minds. So put differently, perhaps we all collectively recognize for the most part an objective dimension of the lives that we live. How we actually live our lives day to day and not simply a perception is intricately tied to the good life. So who cares? Why does this matter? Here's why. Assuming that all of us want to realize our best life, I think that's a good assumption. Assuming we all want to become the best version of ourselves, also a good assumption. And assuming that we recognize that the good life is more than just a state of mind, how should we live our lives? How should we then live? This morning, I want to provide three ways, three approaches or beliefs as it relates to thinking about this question. Specifically, these approaches and beliefs consider the relationship between an objective standard for how we live our lives, not simply a subjective standard. And more specifically, I'm talking about a morally upright, virtuous life and how that relates to the good life. So let me put this differently. What is the relationship between a virtuous life and the good life? Three approaches. So the first one is this. The virtuous life is not your best life. That's one approach to that question. Now, probably the, the best philosophical justification for this actually occurred a couple thousand years ago in Plato's Republic. And in the book, Socrates, who is Plato's teacher in real life, is having a conversation with interlocutors, Thrasymachus and Glaucon. We actually named our children after that. No, I'm just <laughs> My wife's rolling her eyes. Um, so the conversation is about justice, but it quickly goes into another conversation. Is the just life, is the upright life, is the virtuous life actually our best life? Socrates says yes. Thrasymachus says no, it's actually not. In fact... For Thrasymachus, being a good and virtuous person actually keeps you from having your best life. And then Glaucon chimes in and he says, I agree with Thrasymachus, and let me actually give uh, an example of this, what's called the Ring of Gyges. He says, imagine someone finding a ring, and when they put it on and they rotate it, they become invisible. What would such a person do with that power, the power to become invisible? And Glaucon says, well, they would steal and plunder wealth. They would sexually violate others. They would enact revenge on their worst enemies. In other words, penalties, retribution, and reputation are really the only things that keep us from the good life. This is why Oscar Wilde says, you give a man a mask, he'll show you his true face. So the idea is that it's only because of external pressure, our reputation, or legal penalties that we don't do what we really want to do. So in summary, 
If you want to be morally upright and virtuous, you will not be happy or fulfilled. The virtuous life, while admirable, is not your best life. That's one approach. The second is this. The virtuous life is not your best life, but it's your best afterlife. This view obviously relates more specifically to the person of faith. Put differently, life for a person of faith must give up all the fun stuff, all the vain delights, as one author puts it. But that's okay because this short life, while it's miserable, will eventually give way to an eternal life that's awesome. In Augustine's most famous work, Confessions, right after he has this profound conversion experience, he is confronted by his former mistresses. And they have this interesting exchange. They say, Augustine, will you really give us up? Will you really give away your life for a life of God? And then they famously say, will you really give up this and that with us? Now, we can only imagine what this and that really means. But the point is this. Augustine had chosen this boring, prudish life filled with rules and restrictions and legislation. And to be honest with you, this characterizes a lot of my faith that I had growing up. Uh, I don't get to do the fun stuff because I'm a Christian, but my secular friends, they get to do the cool stuff. But it's all right because one day, someday down the road, we're all going to die, and then they have to go to this cruel, crummy place where they're not going to enjoy it, and I get to go, and then I get to have this exhilarating life. And moreover, there's a trade-off here, right? What is just one meager lifetime of misery when you get to exchange it for this awesome afterlife? So let me summarize this. Living a virtuous life today is not my best worldly life under this view, but it will inevitably lead me to my best afterlife. And by this logic, the trade-off is worth it. Third, the virtuous life is my best life and it's my best afterlife. And Asbury, I want to submit to you today, it's my conviction that this is the best way to think about the relationship between morality and virtue and the good life. Aristotle thought so. He said that happiness is activity of the soul that accords with virtue and excellence. It's found in doing what we were designed to do, that our fullness is bound up in fulfilling the purpose of which we were designed and made. This view is also Wesleyan, the very theological tradition that we espouse here at Asbury University. That is, our salvation, being saved and being holy and set apart, is not simply some box that we check so that we can get into the great banquet. Rather, Wesley links holiness with happiness, with satisfaction, with fulfillment, and with gratification. Living the way Christ meant for us to live is what our, our souls truly longeth for, is what he says. Now, let me qualify this because I think our modern notion of happiness very much follows something like what we heard in the experience machine. That is, it's a state of mind. Happiness is four hours of Netflix and a pizza and people leaving me alone, right? You know, something like that. But that is not a classical definition of happiness, which is what Wesley was working off of. Rather, Wesley says, happiness is an outcome of moral comportment. In other words, 
When you seek happiness and fulfillment as an end in itself, it will elude you. But when you seek first the righteousness of God as a byproduct, as an outcome, you get fullness. Now, I want to be really clear on this point. When I talk about the good life, I'm not talking about a life of ease. I'm not talking about a life that's immune from complexity, from complication, hurt, loss, frustration, messiness, ugliness, pain. In fact, when Christians say that becoming a Christian makes you immune to these things, I think it's bad theology and it's a dangerous way of thinking about our lives. Rather, I'm describing something like Paul in Ephesians 3 in his prayer, beginning in verse 14, where he prays for them that they would have light and they would have power and they would have strength and they would have love. And he ends by saying that his prayer is they would have fullness. Under this view, to be a Christ follower does not commit a Christian to ascetic drudgery or banish them to a life of unfulfilled desire, nor does it limit the promise of fulfillment to an otherworldly heavenly realm. Indeed, believes Wesley, this is true satisfaction. And moreover, this fulfillment is available to you and I, this side of heaven. Let me conclude with an interesting story. I've shared this with some students that I've had, so I won't get to this fall, so I'll just share it with all of you. 1928, John Maynard Keynes, the economist, got to give a speech, I believe this was at Cambridge, and it was called Economic Possibilities for our grandchildren. It was a futuristic speech. What would the world be like 100 years from 1928? And we're now approaching that very world that Keynes predicted. Now he made two predictions. The first one was our technological growth that we have will increase our standard of living by four to eight times. He actually even drew a curve for this. And economists today are like, very, very good forecast. He was almost spot on, and in fact, by 2030, he may, he may be exactly right, an eight-time increase in our standard of living. But he made a second prediction, and it was, as we get more stuff, and as we get more wealth, we're going to do other things. We're going to have new experiences. Our relationships will be more robust. We won't want as much. Therefore, we will only work three hours a day or 15 hours a week. Today, the average American works north of 44 hours a week. So first prediction, almost spot on. Second prediction, could not have been more wrong. What did Keynes miss? He thought that you and I could be satisfied. And not just that you and I could be satisfied, that we could be satisfied with stuff, with money, with things, with pleasure, with experiences. In economic parlance, he thought that wealth had diminishing marginal utility. In other words, the more we got, the less valuable it would be to us. But instead, the more we get that doesn't satisfy, we feel like we need to get even more. So he assumed that we could be satisfied with stuff. Now let me be clear, I like stuff. I like wearing newly polished shoes. I like Google Maps. I like my espresso maker a lot. <laughs> I like things that are pleasant and pleasurable. I like taking a hot bath in the winter. I like reading a good book an hour before bed. I love to watch my kids play sports. I like Dairy Queen blizzards. 
I like college basketball. I like traveling. I like freedom, and I like security. I like having a paycheck. I like an insurance statement and account. I like a retirement account. I like status. I like recognition. I like reinforcement. When I grew up, I enjoyed receiving trophies. I like it when someone says, that was a great comment you made in Sunday school, Kevin. I like having articles published. Here's the thing. Don't confuse these secondary goods with our primary reason for existence, living into the fullness of who God created you and I to be. Relationship with God, relationship with others, service. I would love it if the, one of the, the strongest marks of being an Asbarian is that we serve. You're an Asbarian, you serve. That's what we do. We find creative ways to serve others. Otherness, acts of piety that grow our faith, acts of mercy that allow us to learn service, to practice justice, and to experience solidarity with others. This is John 10, 10, the abundant life that Jesus has come so that we may have life and have it to the full. As Eugene Peterson puts it, more life and better life than you ever dreamed of. We weren't made for perceived experiences. We were made for an encounter with God, with Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit. That's the theme of chapel this year, encounter. Augustine says, you made us for yourself and restless are our hearts until they find their rest in thee. Let me read you one really quick quote from C.S. Lewis. Wouldn't be a chapel, an opening chapel, if he, his name wasn't invoked. <laughs> he says, God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gasoline, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. There is no such thing. The good life. Lord, you made us for yourself and restless are our hearts until they find their rest in thee. I want your life, your good life, to characterize your experience at Asbury, your best life to constitute your time here and your time beyond it. That would be a gift. Uh, and again, this doesn't shield us. It doesn't make us immune from life's complexities. And it's dangerous when we say that it does. But let me repeat again what Paul says in Ephesians 3. Light, strength, power, love, fullness. This is the good life. Let's all have the good life and experience the good life together. Let me pray really quickly. Heavenly Father, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me, Kevin Brown, for when I think things and money and experiences, secondary goods at best, will give me and will fill within me what Pascal called a God-shaped hole. Father, forgive me. And I pray that we would all collectively set our sights towards the hills where we find our strength, our power, our light, our love, and our fullness. Lord, dwell in this place. 
Who are we without your presence? Dwell in this place. May we honor and glorify you in these actions. May we live the good life together. May we encourage one another, build one another up so that we can take hold of the life that really is life because you made us for yourself. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you for the privilege of being here. Thank you for the amazing people behind me. And thank you for these incredible students before me that we have the opportunity to serve. It's in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.